Greetings and welcome to Flanagan's Ecologic. I am your host, Ted Flanagan, and we're joined by my friend Drew Shula. He's the founder and CEO of The Vertical Group, a firm that specializes in net zero carbon solutions and strategies, engineering. They put on events. Drew is a force in the carbon-free space. Hey, Drew, welcome to the show. Nice to have you on. Thank you, Ted. Happy to be here. Uh, really, really thrilled to, to really thrilled to dive into your net zero carbon world. That you're, uh, as I said in the opening, you're a you're a you're a force. But uh, let's just quickly let's just quickly kind of set the stage here. I know this because we had lunch some months ago. But born and raised in Belfast, Maine. Yes, I was born and raised in Belfast, Maine. It's a beautiful part of the world, and I think. Um, I, I always say, like, you have to have been to Maine to really understand me because so much of Maine is who I am as a person. Um, I, I grew up uh, very much out in the like, outdoors and uh, in nature all the time and um, connected with the, the uh, environment and the animals around, around where we lived. And it was a really wonderful place to grow up. And, and I, we had the we had the pleasure of driving through sailing up the coast last uh, summer and then driving back down and went through Belfast. So I thought of you as I did. But what did you want to be when you grew up? Were you I mean, the, the nature connection was big. Were you going to save the, the earth early off or or what? Yeah, and that's a great question. Um, initially, I wanted to be a I think first a pro baseball player. Uh, I, w I was a big fan of the Cleveland uh, Major League team, and Kenny Lofton was my favorite player, and I was a little leaguer and really wanted to be a professional baseball player. And after that, I think I transitioned to wanting to be a professional sponsored skateboarder. I was a big skateboarder in high school. And... Then, uh, and then I think I had a rock star phase. So, you know, I had the typical pro athlete in rock star phases of <laughs> dreams. Um, but I didn't really, I was very much a, always a generalist growing up. Um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, and it's funny because I do think about this now. Like, I remember thinking in high school, like, I'm like, you know, pretty good at a lot of things, but I'm not the best at anything. And I thought that was sort of like a downside for me, but it's so funny. Like now as I've become a CEO of a company, that's exactly what it takes to be successful is to be, to be knowledgeable and, and pretty good at a lot of, at everything, a lot of different things um, in, in my role for what I do now running vertical group. Yeah. How interesting. But now before we uh, move to your college days, what instrument were you on in the, in the rock star days? Were you a guitar player or? <laughs> I, I was uh, the, a lyricist. I love hip hop and rap, and I write a lot, and uh, I love music. I was very, very artsy growing up, and that also was part of what uh, led me to study architecture in college, um, was that sort of artistic side. And the, the, you went to Notre Dame. What, what drew you out, out to that part of the world? I went to Notre Dame, um, and I grew up uh, a fan of the Fighting Irish, watching the football team. And uh, my mom is from Indiana, and so I have family out there as well um, in the Indianapolis area. And so when it was time to apply to colleges, it was definitely a natural place to uh, to want to head off to. 
And um, yeah, I ended up in the Midwest and I, I do always appreciate that because I grew up on the East Coast in Maine and now I live in, on the West Coast in LA. And I might not have had the opportunity to, to live in the Midwest otherwise. So I'm glad I got that experience in college. Yeah, yeah, that appreciation of all the different parts of our country. You mitered in philosophy. Was there anything, any particular succinct lesson that you take away from that? Yeah, I, I um, you know, just learning how to think. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm just a very um, thoughtful person, kind of in my head a lot. And, um, you know, again, I think it kind of goes back to growing up in Maine. And I, I grew up on, you know, 40 acres of land out in, in, really in the middle of nowhere. The nearest neighbors were half a mile away. And um, I, would, I was outside walking through the woods by myself all the time. I'm very, very comfortable just alone with my thoughts. I'm also a, a social person too, but um, just grew up, you know, by myself all the time. And so I really appreciate the sort of just the study of understanding ways of thinking about things and approaching the world um, with, with different types of uh, sort of philosophy of, of how to work. And I think it makes you mentally stronger and gives you tools um, to, to take on challenges as, as they come up. So that was sort of the, you know, just the natural interest in philosophy. And I, that was a sort of a, a, a I can't, it wasn't a, it wasn't a full double major, but it was a supplementary major. I think it was called that I paired up with, with the study of architecture. And then, and then you went from, from your study of architecture in college, it seems like you went to a number of firms like JLL was one that I recognized, uh, the Thomas properties. Uh, those were, that was all before your carbon focus, correct? Yeah. Um, my, path or journey um, took me a while to figure out what I wanted to do. Um, I, I think it's very, it was very different. I, I, I finished college in 2005. Um, there was no sustainability jobs at that time. And that's, that's really what I, what I do now, what I focus on now. This, so this was, you know, eight, 18 years ago. And um, I did have this drive. I knew I wanted to try to make a positive impact on the world and make money doing it. Like I boiled it down. You know, that's what I was focused on. But I really thought maybe the way to do that was in the nonprofit world at that time. Um, but I just I couldn't land a job. Um, you know, I was very, you know, very entry level right out of college. I had a hard time landing a job. It, it was it was taking me months to find work um, after I had relocated from Maine back out to California. And um, Let's see, I, I finally went back to using my degree. At, at first, I took a, I did a lot of odd jobs. I worked for a temp agency for a while in San Francisco, and uh, they gave me placements as just basically working at the front desk of a bunch of different companies. I, I got to work at the front desk of Wired Magazine for a little bit. And that was cool. Um, there was a, a branding company, and I was, I was making coffee and just answering the phone and front desk at these places um, but it was kind of cool. it was almost like little mini intern experiences at a lot of different types of companies um I did, when i graduated my architecture degree i wasn't in love with architecture i wasn't in love with with design and so i was sort of i was really burned out too from all the all-nighters in college so i kind of took a break um so i did other things i painted houses as well that was 
my dad was a school teacher uh, growing up and he taught high school English and he would always paint houses in the summer. So I picked that up with him and, and did that for a couple summers during college, climbing around, you know, New England style clabbered, scraping, scraping and painting the houses all summer. Um, so I did that as well. I did random jobs like uh, I worked at a peach stand at the Berkeley Farmers Market, you know, for a while just to make some extra money on the weekends. I went door to door. Um, trying to do environmental campaign fundraising that lasted i think about a week I, I i didn't take to that very well but anyway it was all all these odd jobs trying to figure out my path and i finally came back around to my degree oh oh yeah i have this architecture degree a five-year architecture degree maybe i should be using this so i did work in architecture for a couple years at a great firm in la called Jerdy. um and then i got into JLL, as you mentioned, you know, a couple of years later. Um, but that was that was an experience in itself because I actually, you know, there's definitely some great people at JLL and the company has changed a lot over the past, you know, 10 or 12 years since I've been there. But I had a miserable, horrible time when I was there. Very toxic culture, um, some really just bad experiences, which you almost you, you oftentimes learn the most from bad experiences. So I I learned a lot about what I want wanted vertical group to become and what I did not want it to become from, from some of those bad experiences. So what was the what was the early vision then for, for vertical group? Well, it, it went back to um, my sort of root or core goal coming out of college of wanting to do good and make money doing it. And I found that in sustainability and room building. Um, when I was working at the architecture firm, I had been exposed to the green team in Dirty's office, um, and I got exposed to, to LEED at that time, um, you know, the rating system for green buildings. And I loved it. And I, I could see this opportunity to marry up, you know, having grown up very environmentally focused in Maine and my love of the great outdoors and nature with my degree and having studied buildings, I, I saw like, oh, wow, I can, I can kind of do both things here and have a career and make money um, while also making a positive impact on the environment. And, you know, Vertical Group, uh, I started uh, in 2012. And at that time, it was just a very, um, there was a lot happening. There was a lot of momentum around lead, uh, around this, the sustainability space for buildings. Um, things were starting to to gain traction in the market, and and so I saw an opportunity to to start a consulting company really focused on um, the carbon impact of buildings. You know, forty forty percent of global carbon emissions come from buildings, as a stat we we all often often use. And um, if we were going to have a shot at solving the climate crisis, the building industry really needed to make a lot of change. Um, and so yeah, that's where I kind of just dove in and, and I was, uh, and, and threw up a shingle and was off to the races. Well, I love your, I love your, uh, put, threw up a shingle. That's very New England, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> I think it's true that you actually started in your backyard or in your garage in the back of your house. Is that right? That is true. That's, that's the origin story. You know, the California garage startup story. I love, uh, you know, the, the sort of Steve Jobs story as well. He, he's been a, um, you know, a, a mentor that I've always looked up to and, you know, read a lot about 
um, never met in person, but I just mean a, so I've learned from through his writing and you know the whole that whole story of the the California startup um, had been embedded in me from hearing hearing about hearing and learning about Apple and Google and um, some you know the big tech stories and of course you know we're a we're a, a twenty person consulting firm so we're, we're we're nothing like that nothing that scale but um, but yeah that that was uh, my story as well uh, just had the garage in the backyard in Pasadena uh, we lived kind of uh, you know, a few blocks away from Caltech and, um, now I've since moved over to Sierra Madre, the next town over, but that was me in the garage. There was no heating or cooling. We had a tortoise walking around the backyard. I had my little two-year-old would come and bang on the garage door and I would sit out there with my winter coat on in the winter and no shirt on in the summer because it would be hundred degrees out there sweating into my laptop. That was before I had office space. That's how I got started. That's really impressive. And I want to let's let's jump to the conference and then double back on more on vertical group. But because, you know, you started in that in that backyard garage and now you're you know, this is your 10th. I think we're coming up on your 10th, your 10th annual net zero conference that has now gotten huge. Right. I mean, it started really small. And in 10 years, it's the biggest net zero conference in the country, if not the world. Right. Uh, I talked yeah. Talk about that evolution. I think I heard you like six or seven years ago saying at the mic, you said, uh, which you're fantastic uh, facilitating these conferences. You said something, I can't believe we're here uh, in this large space, but it's gotten even larger. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm so glad to talk about it with you. Um, it started off, we, it, it was an accident that we got into events. We, um, when, when I first started Vertical Group, we were a very small team, probably maybe three or four people. And um, we were slow with our workload. So we thought, oh, maybe we could do an event, you know, to get our clients together or help educate architects or net zero. It was, a, it was sort of a merging buzzword, um, you know, 10 years ago. This was around 2014 so. And um, so we did our first event and 100 people showed up and we made tons of mistakes around um, technology. Like, you know, people were putting slides up and changing from PowerPoint to PDF and there was huge delays between each presentation. <laughs> it was uh, it was not not the, the smoothest event, but we were so proud afterward that 100 people had showed up that we had really tried uh, really helped educate um Bunch of our clients around net zero, something that we were really excited about working on net zero buildings on, on the consulting side of our business. We did it again the next year, and uh, I think 300 people showed up. And we were like, oh, wow, we, we might be onto something here. That was, that's kind of a big, a big increase. And so we, we really just fell into it and we started, we, we continued to do it each year, and it kept getting a little bit bigger each year. And we ended up hiring some people on our team who were event pros that really knew what they were doing to, to make the event run smoother. And the industry really, you know, just gained momentum around net zero and more and more people started getting interested in attending and the attendance grew. I think we were at uh, about 1200 people last year and we expect it to grow again this year uh, in 2023. Um, but yeah, that's, that's how the net zero conference first got started. We're, we're at the, now we went from a very small venue to now the largest venue in Southern California. We're at the LA convention center the past couple of years. That's just incredible. What a great story. And I've been to, I mean, fantastic gatherings, uh, 
But well, before we, let me take a pause just on uh, definitions here, because you mentioned the buzz about net zero. Um, and there certainly is. It, it, help me out, because I hear zero net energy. I hear net zero. Um, and then obviously we're sort of shifting to 24-7 carbon free energy. But what term is, is there a term you prefer? Yeah, I actually have been talking about this past year or two as well. Um, I, I think we have a problem in the sustainability industry. This, there's just way too much confusing terminology. It's overly complicated. People don't know how to talk about things or compare projects apples to apples because there's so many different you know, terms out there. It, it's just overly complicated and we need to try to simplify it so that everybody can understand and we can we can really push the market forward and achieve what we're trying to achieve as we try to solve the climate crisis but you know we it, it, we named our conference the net zero conference um but there are there are, the sustainability market changes so much so fast literally every year even every quarter um that you know we we could we could have renamed the conference every year as well because we're really talking more about, like you just said, 24-7, um, you know, zero carbon, um, net positive. You know, it's really about re regenerative buildings now, getting beyond just carbon neutrality or, or net zero, not just zeroing out the impact, but how can we even make a building, you know, generate more uh, electricity and water from renewables um, um, than just zeroing out its impact? So. You know, there, again, there's so much terminology. Um, we're sticking with net zero because, for now, because it's a well-known term, and many, many companies who are just dipping their toes into this for the first time, getting to zero is 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 a huge deal for almost every company out there. Uh, however, in within our sustainability field that you and Ted, you and I, you know, really work within. The, you know, the leaders in the field are already started talking and pushing beyond zero to, to these regenerative buildings. Um, but yeah, there's too much, too much terminology, as I'm sure you, you agree. Yeah, that, that's really useful. And by the way, the, our, this podcast started out being called the net positive, because I just love that term net positive. And some of us are going to have to get beyond zero uh, to regenerate and to compensate for others that, that, that can't. Uh, so that's fantastic. And the conference is coming up in September, right? This next one? September 14th, 2023 at the LA Convention Center. And the website just netzeroconference.com. Perfect. And then let's let's double back to Vertical Group because you, I, I think you work with green building certifications. You have engineering services, architectural services. You're developing strategies for clients to get to net zero or to get to net positive. You put on events. Uh, give us a little bit more. What are what are some of the coolest projects? Uh, not in the we've talked events. What are some of the coolest projects that you guys have uh, guys and gals have managed? Yeah, um, gosh, we it's been so interesting through the years. Um, we've got to work on some real projects, real cool clients. We've put some of the big tech companies again, the Apples and Googles and Metas of the world. Um, gotten to work on the NASA JPL campus um, here in the LA area. Um, one really cool project that we're on is has a 14-year schedule. It's for a large 
um, hospital campus in Torrance, which is just south of LA, um, the Harbor UCLA Medical Center campus. And they're upgrading it. It's a 75 acre campus um, and they're upgrading it to be used for the uh, hospital that they'll use for the Olympics when the Olympics come to LA. And, and I think it's 2028, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so that's a cool one. Um, but yeah, like you said, you know, we're, we do we do meet clients where they're at and just try to get them to push as far as they can. But of course, we're we're working within the constraints of their budget and um, you know their design goals. Uh, but we're the sustainability seat at the table to be there to make sure things don't get VE'd out or value engineered out during the course of the design process. Um, and, and and then when it gets into construction. Um, to make sure the project stays as as sustainable and high performance as possible. Um, so we do a lot of certification work, um, things like LEED certification um, or fit well or well or living building challenge. Um, then we also provide a lot of the more technical and engineering services that just make the building more efficient. So we're, we're doing 3D um, energy models, we're doing daylight models, um, we're commissioning the building to make sure the systems are optimized and we're doing life cycle assessments now, which plays into the embodied carbon side of things. Very good. Very good. And I think you kind of touched on some, I'm, I'm just, what do you see as the biggest challenges, um, to becoming net zero? Like when you're, is it that things get value engineered out, which I think just means that they're too expensive. Right. Um, but what, yeah. are, what are the biggest challenges that, that your clients are facing? Uh, um, as they as they push towards net zero. Um, yeah, I mean, I think. Well, I would say I would say education as well. Just being knowledgeable um, about why we need to take these actions, or you know, take climate action in our building and design. And um, I've been calling for architectural disobedience to just break away from the norm. The, the building industry is super repetitive in the way it works. It's very cookie cutter. Design teams, architects, and builders, they find, they find efficiency in, in being able to just reproduce the, the same thing over and over and over. So it's really difficult to create change. And that's a lot of what we're doing, is educating our, our teams that we're working with around why this is important to solve the climate crisis and where the opportunities are. You know, what, and if you start early, and, and you make this a priority early in the design process, oftentimes there's, you know, minimal uh, increase to the budget, um, but just to be focused from day one. And, you know, typically in the past, there's been just two big lenses in the, in the design phase or around design and, and budget, but there now needs to be the third lens for sustainability to really make that a part of the conversation at every, every meeting. Um, and if you do that, you end up with a with a much better project that's m more efficient, reduces your um, operating expenses, your energy and water bills, and um, will be set up for the long term. Especially if we start to face, you know, carbon taxes in the future, um, you could be doing some risk mitigation to avoid that. If you have a, a super green, you know, zero carbon or net zero building um, today, so there's a lot of good reasons to invest in this. Um, and of course, primarily number one is for all of us to work together 
and take voluntary actions right now to help solve the climate crisis. But eventually, you know, talking about taxes or, or policies at the, you know, from government, um, it could be required in the future as well. But we're not we're not there yet. Well, well put, well put, well put. Um, your biggest accomplishments? You, you got, you've done so many. You've you've published. You've spoken. You've been on boards. You, what 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 are you? What what are the top two or three that come to your mind when, when you're boast when you're boasting? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> yeah, I I love um, just being a, a startup person, having started a small company. Um, I'm really passionate just about uh, talking about startups. I, I just, it's a constant challenge learning experience for me over the past 10 years. And I look forward to that continuing in, in the years ahead. There's always something new to learn. Um, and one of the things I'm most proud of, I think, is our uh, B Corporation certification. And if you haven't checked this out, it's very, very cool. It's it's intended for for-profit companies who want to make a positive impact on people in the environment. Again, it goes back to my days of knowledge. Uh, you know, that's, that's what I wanted to do, make a positive impact and money doing it. And this B Corporation process is exactly that. So it's, you know, Vertical Group is a very high scoring um, certified B Corp. And there's, there's about, I think about 6,000 B Corps uh, in the world today, which is a lot more than there used to be. I think when we got certified um, six or seven years ago, I believe there was only maybe 2,000 at that point. So there's been, there's, they've been growing a, a lot. Yeah, Patagonia is a well-known B Corp, Ben and Jerry's ice cream. Um, there's a lot of pretty big brands that have done it. And it's a great tool for continuous improvement of any business around making a positive impact on people and the environment. It really takes a holistic look at all aspects of the business. Um, and it's a points-based system and you, you make improvements and set policies that guide, you know, how the company functions and it just gets better and better over time and you make more and more of a positive impact. And what we've also experienced is our revenue has also grown um, year over year along with making more and more positive impact. So we're, I think that's what I'm most proud of. It's really, working to prove out this philosophy that you can do good and make money doing it. And there's a lot of businesses in this space, in the sustainability space, just like your company, uh, Ted, who are doing that. And I, I just think you can't get much better than that. When, when, when you can do that in your life, you can do good and make money doing it. That's, that's the best. Totally, totally agree. How fantastic. And, and by the way, EcoMotion is a B Corp also. Uh, so we Yes. Right. We're in the, but you have you have much more experience, and I like what you said about the continual improvement. Um, we certainly, you know, all we do is do good in the world. That's all we do as a company. Um, but it was very useful to go through and look carefully at all of our operations and our, our policies, and our, all the way through. I think our staff is very very proud of it, and we're all we're all now tracking. We in our timesheets, we're all tracking our eco actions. So, you know, how much, you know, driving are we doing or mass transit are doing or exercising or, you know, how are we offsetting our footprint? We're tracking that um, every month, which is kind of fun. Um, Drew, you've, Powerful. Got, awesome. you've done amazing stuff. Thank you. You're a force in the industry, as I've said now a couple of times. Um, how do you keep your balance? Uh, uh, you, you look great. You're, you're act, you, you're, you're the main are in. You really came out during this interview. Uh, how are you keeping your balance? I know you've got kids. 
I do. Yeah, boy. Well, thank you for saying that. I don't, I don't, you know, I think, and maybe this is the case for a lot of people. Um, you know, it's a struggle. It's always a struggle. Um, yeah, I do have three kids, uh, Acadia, Callie and Arthur, they are 12, eight and three and gosh, you know, with, with family, um, and, and being, being busy with running a, a, a business, um, uh, maintaining, you know, your physical and mental health is, uh, is difficult. We just all have limited time. I saw, I'm going to mention this today because it, it was, it was really powerful for me, but I just watched a wonderful documentary called Stutz, uh, with Jonah Hill, uh, interviewed by his therapist that just came out on Netflix. Highly recommend it. Um, one of the key, uh, tools that, are, that I learned from this uh, are is, is about this pyramid at the base of the pyramid you know 80% of your well-being is just around doing the basics of sleeping well eating right um, and exercising you know and, and then you get into your social life as well making sure you're connecting with people and having having strong social ties uh, and then the, the, there's just three levels in this pyramid. And then that, the top level then is just your relationship with yourself. Um, and when we talked about philosophy earlier and kind of spending some time uh, reflecting and uh, be self-aware and be able to grapple with, with challenges as they come along. Um, but I think, you know, again, going back to the base of that pyramid, just doing those basics, um, sleeping and eating and, um, exercising, if you can, if you can maintain that, you'll, you'll be 80% of the way there to, to having good balance in your life. And, um, I, I definitely have some things I need to work on, but <laughs> I'm learning as I go as well. We all do. All right. Hey, listen, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Carry on. Oh, Ted, thank you so much. I hope everybody out there really listens to a lot of the episodes in your series. You've had incredible guests on this. I'm just honored to be a part of it. Thank you so much. Have a good afternoon. That's it. Thanks for listening to Flanagan's Ecologic. We'll see you next time.